and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Judith Hagedorn from the University of Washington talking about pediatric renal trauma. Um, welcome everyone to the 10 o'clock uh, COVID Lecture Series. I'll be talking about pediatric renal trauma. I'm Judith Hagedorn. I'm at the University of Washington, an assistant professor. And um, welcome to my um, lecture series. Uh, we'll, I don't have any disclosures. And uh, this is the outline of my talk, we'll, which will give me uh, some time for uh, participants to arrive. So I'm going to uh, stay on this uh, slide for a little bit. But uh, I'll start with a case of a nine-year-old boy who suffered from a renal trauma. Then I'll go uh, over the epidemiology of pediatric renal trauma, followed by the AST grading. And that's very important for us to uh, go over since it will uh, most of the time direct management. It also is a very good indicator of the risk of intervention and the risk of complications from a renal injury. Um, going over imaging, CT scans, as well as ultrasounds that can be used in renal trauma, especially in pediatrics. And then uh, I'll go over some complications and the interventions uh, that we have for uh, several of the complications due to renal trauma. This um, lecture is based on the Campbell-Walsh um, book. I think it's now called Campbell-Walsh Wean. Um, book. It's, its new edition has an entire chapter on pediatric genitourinary trauma, and uh, it's chapter 52 um, that will be, uh, uh, will basically follow that concept and uh, will um, uh, go through the, the chapter together. I also um, interspersed Euro trauma guidelines from the AUA, as well as from the EAST, which is the Eastern Association for Surgery of Trauma, that had, has a published uh, specific pediatric renal trauma guidelines. So let's start with our uh, first case. Um, I also want to uh, bring up uh, before we start that there are going to be polling questions that are, um, are going to uh, pop up and I would love for you to participate. They are mostly true and false uh, questions. And then, of course, use your chat function. Um, Dr. Alice Goken, who is currently the pre-con uh, trauma fellow with us here at University of Washington is going to keep track of the questions and during our Q&A session at the end of the talk we can go over them. So starting off, uh, patient MA, he's a nine-year-old boy who had a fall during a football practice. He fell backwards onto a teammate's cleats. He went home but then um, complained about abdominal pain and his parents brought him into the emergency room. You'll get a history and physical and diagnostic studies. And the history and physical is really negative, which is um, many times the case in young trauma patients, no medical history, no surgical history, family history, not significant for any GU abnormality. He goes to school and lives with his, lives with his parents. Um, so not very informative there, um, but basically a healthy uh, boy. Uh, vital signs are taken in the ER, slightly elevated heart rate, blood pressure is stable at 125 over 84, the patient has normal temperature, a little bit elevated respiratory rate, satting well, and has pain in the abdomen, left flank. And on your exam, the exam is really negative, um, 
except for flank pain when you um, touch the patient on the left abdomen and uh, flank uh, toward the back. No flank hematoma. He also uh, urinated once and the emergency room was able to send a UA that did not show any red blood cells in the urine. In the ER, he also got lab tests right on arrival and then um, about two hours later, uh, the white blood cell count um, is 21, so somewhat elevated, um, as well as the hematocrit, uh, which is significant for a hematocrit drop from 32 to 24. Uh, the creatinine is 0 0.4, which is a normal creatinine. So you think about imaging. Uh, do you need to image that patient or not? Did he either fall from standing onto uh, uh, his teammate's cleats? The um, hematocrit has drastically, uh, significantly reduced um, or decreased, uh, which is worrisome. His vital signs are still stable. There's no blood in the urine. And you can go to your AUA Eurotrauma guidelines for some um, help. Um, the guidelines state that clinicians should perform diagnostic imaging with IV contrast enhanced computer tomography in stable blunt trauma patients with gross hematuria or microscopic hematuria and systolic blood pressures of less than 90. So basically someone who has gross hematuria or microscopic hematuria detected on a UA and shock. Um, our patient does not qualify uh, for imaging from those guidelines. So let's go on. Clinicians should perform diagnostic imaging with IV contrast enhanced CT in stable trauma patients with mechanism of injury or physical exam findings concerning for renal injury. Rapid deceleration injuries, for example, significant blow to the flank, which our patient might have had, rib fracture, significant flank ecchymosis, penetrating injury to the abdomen, flank, or lower chest. So maybe we can, uh, uh, we should image that patient of ours because he had a significant blow to the flank. And the clinician should perform IV contrast enhanced abdominal pelvic CT with immediate and delayed imaging when there is suspicion for renal injury. I think we can have a suspicion for renal injury in this, in this patient and that's why we got a CT scan. And it's important to uh, stage the patient completely and uh, what I mean by that is that you want to get delayed phase imaging. So there's three phases of that um, CT scan. The first phase would be the arterial phase where you can see extravasation of contrast that means that there's active bleeding. There's a nephrogenic phase that shows you the parenchyma of the kidney and you can see lacerations. And then the delayed phase will show you urine extravasation from the collecting system, maybe the renal pelvis, maybe from a UPJ disruption or ureteral injury. So it's important to get the delayed phase imaging done. This is the CT scan from our patient. And you can see here, I'm gonna move my cursor. Um, you can see this is the arterial phase. The kidneys and the vessels are lighting up. And you can see a large hematoma around the left kidney and extravasation. And you can see that it's, it's um, coming from the kidney and actually filling up that hematoma. So worrisome for active bleeding. This is the coronal view. Again, you can see a large retroperitoneal hematoma. And from this, we wanna now grade our patient. And I'm gonna go through the AST trauma uh, grading with you. This is uh, a newly published um, article or, or um, image 
from the um, emergency radiology from 2020. I really like this uh, picture because it really shows all the different scenarios and um, has them uh, nicely um, depicted. The grade one injury is a subcapsular hematoma or parenchymal contusion. The grade two injury is a perineal, a perineal um, hematoma or a laceration that's less or equal to one centimeter. And I want to point out that the grade one and two injuries really do not need any follow-up imaging. They do not need any intervention. Um, they're really low-grade injuries. For the grade three injuries, the parenchymal laceration is greater than one centimeter, and there can be active bleeding, but it's within Jirota's fascia. So usually there's a tamponading effect that happens when the Jirota's fascia fills up. Um, the, that pressure then controls the bleeding. Pseudoaneurysms are also in the grade three uh, category, so um, they can also bleed in a delayed fashion, and we're going to go over that in a little bit. Then grade four um, and grade five renal injuries, these are really the ones that we need to still worry about. Um, they can still be managed conservatively, but uh, we have to have a, um, uh, you know, we, we might have to re-image them, which is in the guidelines. I'm going to uh, show you that in a little bit. And then uh, we also might need to be um, uh, sending the patient to an inter for an intervention. So grade four injuries, they have a parenchymal laceration with urine extravasation. So when you, there is urine extravasation, you're immediately in the grade four uh, category. The, uh, the renal pelvis lacerations or the UPJ obstructions are grade four injuries. Segmental renal vein or artery uh, sunorenorisms are in that category. And then active bleeding extending beyond Jiroda's fascia. And I'm going to go back one image. You can see our patient has exactly that. Uh, there's active bleeding and it, it extends beyond Jiroda's fascia. So there's not the tamponading effect. So the bleeding can go on. As we saw with our patient, it led to a hematocrit drop. Segmental or complete um, kidney infarctions are also in that category. Grade four, five um, injuries are the shattered kidney. Um, that, from that um, injury, the patient can actually exsanguinate if uh, potentially, especially if there's an avulsion of the renal hilum. Um, and some of those patients are actually crashed to the operating room. There's no time for imaging. If that's the case, it's important to image the other kidney with a uh, on-table um, IVP. I'm not going to go into details of that, but it's basically um, a uh, contrast uh, x-ray uh, that you get to make sure that you have a contralateral kidney. So what next? Our patient um, has a hematocrit drop. He is hemodynamically stable. He has uh, no hematuria. He has active extravasation um, about four to six hours after his injury. Um, and what we did, and you know, I think there could be an argument made to maybe observe the patient in the ICU, but he's a young child. Um, they usually keep their blood pressure up for quite a while before they then deteriorate. So what we did um, is follow the guidelines of the um, EST, uh, which states that in hemodynamically stable pediatric patients with high-grade renal injuries from blunt trauma, we strongly recommend angioembolization versus surgical intervention for ongoing or delayed bleeding. Basically, um, you do not want to uh, take the patient immediately to the operating room uh, to uh, uh, do repair the kidney because there's a high risk of nephrectomy or a high uh, um, chance that you will end up or the patient will end up uh, getting the kidney removed, but you send them to the interventional radiologist. And that's exactly what we did. 
we sent the patient to our interventional radiologists and they were able to embolize the vessel that was um, uh, bleeding. The patient was after that admitted to the pediatric ICU. He received an additional one unit of, um, or one unit of blood and uh, the post-transfusion hematocrit adequately responded to 28 and the vital sign stabilized. Over the next day, the hematocrit drifted again down to 25 and he has tachycardia of 130s. And that I've seen several times and sometimes you can even initially admit a patient with a grade three or four injury and in that um, hematocrit slowly drifts down. Our patient, I would say, had a significant drop in hematocrit from 32 to 24 right away. Um, so that was um, something that made us uh, worried and, and that's why he went to interventional radiology. But if it's a slow drift, um, the patient can be observed and the patient can receive another unit of blood. And that's what this patient had. Um, he uh, then had a post-transfusion hematocrit of 32 and his heart rate um, slowly went down and he stabilized um, and his hematocrit was further checked and was stable and he was discharged on a post-intervention day, uh, post, uh, um, day four. We followed the patient closely with an ultrasound. Um, and here you can see there is a uh, hypoechoic collection that you can see here. Um, it is the resolving uh, hematoma or uh, the large hematoma that we saw on the CT scan. And then two months later, that hematoma has completely dissolved and you can see a nice healthy um, kidney on the left side for that patient. So this is, was the case. Now we're going to switch uh, uh, and now tell you a little bit more about epidemiology of renal trauma, especially in children. It's the most common GU trauma in pediatrics. Um, it is, you can see renal traumas in children in 5 to 10% of all blunt uh, trauma to the abdomen. 50% um, of them have associated injuries. That is higher or lower than in um, the adult population. In the adult population, we see about 80% have associated injuries. In children, there's more isolated renal injuries than in adults. And the injury mechanism, uh, the, it's more common to have blunt trauma than penetrating. Low grade is the most often we, we see low grade injuries um, from grade one, two, three uh, injuries rather than grade four and five injuries. Um, probably in 80% of low grade injuries and 20 to 15% of high grade injuries. And motor vehicle accidents are still the, um, uh, uh, the most likely cause of you getting a, a, of the pediatric renal trauma injuries and uh, followed by falls and sports injuries. So here's my first uh, question for you. Uh, true or false, the pediatric kidney is more susceptible to trauma. And I'm going to uh, pause here for a little bit to give you some time uh, to pull. Great. That is very uh, true. Uh, the pediatric kidney is more susceptible to trauma and the reason is um, the kids have more of a pliable thoracic cage. So the kidney, it can be indented more and the kidney damaged that way. Uh, the kids have weaker abdominal muscles, uh, less perirenal fat 
so less cushioning, um, less distance between the impact and the uh, kidney, and then the kidney also sits lower in the abdomen uh, for younger children. Again, uh, exposing it to the um, insulting um, trauma. True or false, another question. Love your participation, thanks. Um, pediatric patients are more likely to present with hematuria. right. So interestingly, if the patient has a pre-existing congenital renal abnormality, which is rare, then they are more likely to present with hematuria. But if they don't, if they have a normal kidneys, then there's a very poor correlation between hematuria and renal trauma, just as we saw in the patient that I um, uh, went over with you earlier. Um, the patient had clear urine, the UA didn't show any RBCs, and he had a significant renal injury. So the absence of hematuria alone does not rule out significant renal trauma in children. And that's a very big difference from adults where we actually, our imaging criteria are reliant on microscopic hematuria with shock or gross hematuria. So what's our indication in children for renal imaging? We cannot rely on hematurial vital signs um, but the mechanism is really the most important. Um, rapid deceleration injuries, the, the significant blow to the flank like our uh, patient had, rib fractures that you can see on the initial x-rays, uh, flank ichemosis should uh, all uh, give you a high suspicion that there's a renal injury. And penetrating injury of the abdomen, flank, and lower chest that are usually explored in the operating room anyway, but they also, uh, you know, gunshot wound to the flank, to the abdomen, needs to give you a high suspicion that there might be the renal involvement or ureteral involvement. Another question for you. The patient comes in and gets a fast exam. That exam is an ultrasound exam that is usually done by the um, ER physician. Um, is it sensitive to detect uh, the uh, renal trauma? And the fast exam is done basically to um, look for fluid in the abdomen. Mm -hmm, good. So the FAST exam for uh, renal trauma is highly specific. Uh, the question was sensitive, so it's not very sensitive, but it's very specific. So if there is no fluid in the abdomen, if the kidneys look good, you can um, very easily rule out renal injury. Um, but it's not very sensitive, meaning that it's unclear if there's fluid in the abdomen, if there is really a true renal injury and it's really highly dependent on the operator, um, usually done very quickly in the, in the emergency room um, trauma bay. But what about ultrasound? Um, a recent study from last year, 2019, from a group from Italy looked at contrast-enhanced renal ultrasound. It uses a second-generation contrast agent that has micro-bubbles and basically lights up the um, perfused segments. And here you can see 
a huge difference between our conventional ultrasound, which would be a fast exam or, or um, an ultrasound that we order for to look at the kidneys. It um, shows a very nice outline of the kidney right here, and you could think that the kidney looks normal, but then the contrast-enhanced ultrasound actually shows a large pericup or subcapsular hematoma that's actually compressing the renal parenchyma. And the study found that um, it had very, very good sensitivity and specificity for renal lacerations. It did not show any urine extravasation or UPJ um, disruption or ureteral injury, of course. Um, that's not, uh, the ultrasound cannot be used for that, but it definitely showed renal injury. So in, in uh, children, um, trying to reduce radiation and go into ultrasound is um, desirable, but still um, a CT scan uh, is the most sensitive and specific uh, test. And it should be done with a multiphasic um, test that I talked to you earlier about, um, the arterial phase followed by the nephrogenic phase and then the delayed imaging. Um, several times or yeah, we sometimes see patients um, that come to us from an outside hospital that just got a, a single phase um, CT scan and what it misses is the urine extravasation. So if you have a high suspicion that there might be a um, a uh, ureteral or renal pelvic or UPJ disruption injury, uh, the delayed phase, uh, adding the delayed phase is very important. And sometimes you can add that if the patient comes to you um, uh, pretty rapidly after they had got the CT scan with contrast in the outside hospital, you can uh, send the patient again through the CT scanner without administration of additional contrast, which is sometimes important, especially if the patient has renal in, uh, renal um, injury, meaning uh, um, an elevated creatinine, uh, and sparing the contrast load uh, is good, but sometimes you can also miss um, that contrast that has already ex excreted from the kidneys. So I would say maybe within four to six hours of um, getting the contrast, it's so safe to uh, send the patient back through the scanner without getting another uh, contrast load to get that excretion phase. So what are we looking at on the CT scans? And we, really, we are really looking at high-risk criteria for intervention. Um, for example, the large perirenal hematoma, our patient had that, he had a greater than 2.2 centimeter hematoma, um, and that's for children. Uh, vascular contrast extravasation, that's exactly what we saw earlier in uh, the, the case example, uh, that is uh, significant for active bleeding. Then the medial renal laceration, it's also important to know uh, about the, uh, uh, the um, devised, uh, devitalized uh, renal parenchyma of greater than 25% um, is also a higher risk for intervention because there's a higher risk of urine leak um, once the uh, parenchyma is injured uh, in that way. And then medial extravasation of urine uh, during the delayed phase as well as urine extravasation and lack of contrast seen in the distal ureter uh, during the delayed phase is uh, you should have a really high suspicion for ureteral injury or UPJ disruption. And what interventions am I talking about? The most likely or common intervention for bleeding is IR angioembolization. For urine leaks, we place ureteral stents, maybe percolated strains, nephrostomy tubes, and then there's open surgery, but that's really only seen in 5% of pediatric patients. Um, and they're mostly done for UPJ repairs. Um, 
or for uh, saving the kidney um, that uh, is actively bleeding. And what you want to do is make sure that you um, don't go straight to nephrectomy, but try to save as much of the kidney parenchyma as possible if it's safe for the patient. What are the complications of uh, renal trauma in, in children? For short-term complications, there can be a persistent or delayed bleed. Uh, we saw that persistent bleed in our case. Um, the patient had an injury about four to five hours before the scan and still was actively bleeding. Urine extravasation uh, can be a complication and then infection or urinoma and abscess. Then long-term complications can be uh, hypertension and chronic pain. And I'm going to go through some of those complications with you now. First, the question, true or false? 40% of patients with grade three and four renal injury managed non-operatively develop persistent or delayed bleeding. So high-grade injury with persistent or delayed bleeding. So 40% is a little high, but it's more 25%. So still the bleeding risk of high-grade injuries is high, maybe not as high as 40%, um, more quarter um, have the uh, bleeding. And so it's important to send the patient's um, blood for uh, hematocrit analysis serially, so meaning um, every four to six hours to monitor for that bleeding. A delayed bleed, so a persistent bleed could be something that you would uh, definitely notice during the initial admission. Once the patient gets discharged, there's also potential for a delayed bleed and develops in about one to two weeks post-injury. It's usually due to a pseudoaneurysm. And basically there's a vessel wall injury that gets walled off by a hematoma that's around that vessel injury. And that hematoma then resolves and you get bleeding again. So you want to counsel a patient that leaves the hospital after a high-grade injury, that if they develop gross hematuria or increased pain, dizziness, they should come back right away um, to get assessed. And the management is IR embolization. It's 80% successful. Um, the 80% success is also there for active bleeding, um, but also for delayed bleed, it's highly successful. And if the patient has continued bleeding after the initial IR embolization, you repeat it, you send them back to IR uh, for another embolization. You only take them to open surgery if several attempts by IR have failed to control the bleeding. There is a syndrome called post-embolization syndrome. Some of you might have um, seen this in patients with renal tumors where we embolize the um, portion of the kidney or the entire kidney before surgery uh, to make it less um, risky with um, reducing blood uh, loss during surgery. Uh, what is it? It's uh, a syndrome that causes you to have a fever, flank pain, and ileus, but it's self-limiting and usually resolves within three to four days. So you can see that also in renal trauma when you embolize a portion of the kidney, um, but it's much, much less likely. So in someone with a renal tumor who gets uh, embolized, 60% of patients have that post-embolization syndrome. And uh, in renal trauma, you see it about 10% 10 10 of patients. 
But if the fever persists um, more than four days, uh, then you should get cult uh, cultures and also consider a CT scan to see if there's any abscess formation or maybe an infected urinoma. What about persistent urine leaks? What do we do about those? So they are seen in grade four or five injuries and uh, they are detected on repeat imaging that is recommended by our AOA Eurotrauma guidelines to repeat imaging in those high-grade injuries, especially to detect urine leaks. 85% though uh, resolve spontaneously. And there's a need for intervention if the patient has flank pain and alias fever. And then if there's a urine leak without uh, contrast seen in the ureter. Again, high suspicion for UPJ or disruption, so you want to uh, make sure you, you um, think of that. Again, our AO Eurotrauma guidelines here state that clinicians should perform follow-up CT imaging for renal trauma patients with either deep lacerations, so the AST grade four or five patients, um, clinical signs of complications like a fever, worsening flank pain, ongoing blood loss, abdominal distension. And clinicians should perform urinary drainage in the presence of complications such as enlarging urinoma, fever, increasing pain, ileus, fistula, or infection. And drainage should be achieved via ureteral stent and may be augmented by percutaneous urinoma drain or a percutaneous nephrostomy or both. And this is my algorithm here, which I think um, has worked uh, well. It is also uh, described in um, Campbell-Walsh. Uh, the intervention for urine leak, you should take the patient to a forced cystoscopy and retrograde um, pilogram, especially if, for example, the first CT scan shows no renal laceration and no uh, contrast going down the ureter, which makes you uh, be suspicious about a UPJ disruption. So take the patient to the operating room, do a cystoscopy and get uh, retrograde imaging. If there is a urine leak at about 48, 72 hours, you can take the patient uh, to the operating room and uh, perform the same cystoscopy and uh, uh, inject contrast retrograde up the ureter into the kidney to see if there's a significant leak. If you see a leak that you find significant um, or if the patient has increased pain um, or fever, you place a ureteral stent. We usually also place a Foley catheter and some also place the patient on prophylactic antibiotics, but there's no literature to support that. Um, you can also place a percutaneous drain in case the ureteral stint does not take care of the pain or the um, infection is still ongoing for an infected urinoma. Um, I have um, hesitated of placing a nephrostomy tube because you place the tube basically through an injured kidney and you can um, increase bleeding, um, but it uh, would be the third step basically if you can't control the leak with a stent and a percutaneous uh, percutaneous drain, you can consider placing a nephrostomy tube. What about um, if the what about angioembolization for urine leak? And that's a very um, neat way to stop a urine leak. Um, it only works in um, certain injuries, but basically, if the stent or drain fails, you could have the patient go back to interventional radiology. If there is a segment that's functional it's not co uh, connected to the collecting system anymore. So basically that kidney portion makes urine, but it's not collected, it's just accumulates in the retroperitoneum. And what the interventional radiologist can do is embolize that blood vessel that feeds that segment, and then um, it would necrose off and stop making urine. So kind of a nice way um, to control a urine leak, but only if you have that uh, basically separated segment that's not connected to the collecting system.
So what are the uh, indications of, for open surgery? I've talked talk to you a lot about the uh, um, minimum invasive interventions. Open surgery, we still have to do if there's persistent hemodynamic instability after resuscitation, the patient is still hemodynamically unstable and needs to go to the operating room. In the operating room, you might see a pulsating hemato retroperitoneal hematoma or expanding hematoma um, in someone who's really exsanguinating um, from the uh, kidney. Uh, the inability to control bleeding with angioembolization, as I mentioned before. And then for urine leak, you only want to operate on uh, that kidney if you had multiple minimal invasive procedures that have failed, like the ureal stent, percutaneous drain, nephrostomy tube, and the patient still has a significant leak. And we want to hesitate and go into open surgery because we know that the nephrectomy rate um, is very high. But you, know, you want to definitely uh, treat an UPJ disruption open, and that should be done as soon as you um, uh, find it. So UPJ obstruction or disruption, um, the evaluation and management is a classic triad, the absence of parenchymal laceration, medial contrast extravasation of, con uh, of contrast, and no visualization of ipsilateral distal ureter. And those should give you this um, high suspicion that there might be a, a problem at the UPJ and uh, it um, is worth exploring. If you diagnose a UPJ disruption in the first week, you should go to open surgery through a laparotomy incision and repair the uh, UPJ. If, it's, uh, if you find that in a delayed manner or if the patient cannot undergo surgery because they might be unstable, they need resuscitation and are just not a surgical candidate for uh, that kind of repair, then consider placing a nephrostomy tube and a retroperitoneal drain to control that uh, leak, that urine leak, and then you come back about three to six months later and then do a pyeloplasty. What about follow-up imaging for all our patients that we um, see? Uh, especially in pediatrics. In pediatrics, you want to, uh, and also for adults, you want to um, follow the principle of ALARA or the as low as reasonable achievable um, con uh, concerning the uh, radiation exposure. So if possible, follow the patient with an ultrasound. Um, I have definitely missed, you know, urine, um, uh, urine extravasation by just using ultrasound. Um, so if, you, if there is an injury that... Um, you're worried about urine extravasation. I think CT scan is still uh, the go-to imaging. But for low-grade um, trauma, you really do not need any follow-up imaging. Grade one and two injuries, they don't need interventions and they do not need any follow-up Im imaging. For high-grade injuries, you can consider an ultrasound like we did for our case. And then a renogram um, is nice to give the patient a idea of how much is left of their kidney function, especially if they had a, um, a high-grade injury it doesn't really change management, um, you know, and, and looking at the CT scan, the initial CT scan gives you a good idea on how much functional kidney there's left. So the renogram um, doesn't change management, but might show you how much um, function that kidney still has. And it's important to use for counseling uh, for the family. CT scan, again, if there's any complication, the patient has a fever, um, a new bleed, new hematuria, I think going to a CT scan is the right way. The European Urologic Association um, just guides you by saying individualized radiologic uh, evaluation. So you can decide on your own. Going toward the, uh, or now uh, talking about the long-term um, complications of uh, pediatric, from pediatric renal trauma. Um, 
it's hypertension. Hypertension can, the patient can initially have that during the hospital stay due to pain, um, but it, if it persists and it persists in about 5% of patients, then um, you need to be working the patient up for potential renal vascular stenosis, which would be the gold blood kidney, um, or AV fistula, segmental renal ischemia, atrophic kidney, and you, they might need surgery. They might need a nephrectomy or partial nephrectomy. Um, or external compression like a page kidney, that those, um, the hypertension is renin-mediated. So treatment with ACE inhibitors is recommended. And we have um, published guidelines on that um, through the EAST um, Association. Um, in pediatric patients with blunt renal trauma, we strongly recommend routine blood pressure checks on follow-up to diagnose hypertension, especially in children because they don't usually get their blood pressure checked. But if they had high-grade renal injury, it's good to communicate to their pediatrician that the patient should um, get a blood pressure check to make sure that uh, you don't um, ignore the, the, or that you can actually find hypertension and treat it um, appropriately. And what do we recommend our patients before they leave the hospital? Number one, I think it's very important to let them know that if they have new onset of hematuria to come in, if they develop increased pain or if they develop a fever to come back immediately. And most likely they would need a CT scan um, at that point to uh, look for complications of the renal trauma. And we tell them that it's okay after about four to six weeks to participate in sports, especially if the remaining kidney is normal. Um, and for contact sports, we recommend uh, using protective gear. And we also warn the family and the patient about high-risk activities where we know that kidney injuries are more likely, which is dirt biking and recycling and ATV riding. Of course, you can't keep the uh, children from doing that, but they need to know, be aware that it's a higher risk of uh, kidney injury, especially if they have a solitary kidney. So that's all I have for you guys. Um, thanks for uh, participating. Um, if you have any questions at any time about uh, renal trauma, pediatric trauma, email me and uh, we'll uh, go through some questions that we have. I leave this up because um, it's uh, uh, very useful for us to have you guys fill out the survey um, at the end of the uh, lecture. So I'll, I'll have Dr. Skokan go through some of the questions that ha uh, might have um, come in. Thanks, Dr. Hagedorn. Uh, great talk on a topic that fortunately, we, you know, patients we don't see too, too often, but that can be challenging to manage. Um, we've got a handful of good questions that have come through. I'm going to run through a few of the things that will help for discussion. Uh, first up, in patients with a high-grade injury and urinary contrast extravasation, is there a role for percutaneous drainage without placing a retrograde set? Very good question. Um, there is... The chapter actually describes that you can offer the patient a percutaneous drain rather than a stent. And um, it even talks about maybe the family um, electing a percutaneous drain rather than a stent. It's interesting to me that it's, it's such a complex um, injury, you know, um, injury that I don't know how much the family can make the decision. I think we have to guide them through that. I have never placed a percutaneous drain, drain without placing a ureteral stent in someone who has active urinary extravasation because I think that stent helps the urine, most of the urine to go down the ureter into the bladder and that's why we place it. Um, it might even, you know, help that ureter um, heal 
without stricturing potentially. Um, so I, I think that only placing a percutaneous drain um, without a stent in an active urine extravasation, I would not do. Um, but if someone comes in with a renal abscess or an infected urinoma, and there's no more urine extravasation that you can see, then a percutaneous drain to drain that fluid collection that's infected um, is totally fine. And you do not need to place a ureteral stent in that scenario. Dr. Skokens, chime in if you, uh, um, uh, anytime, at any time, if you have any um, other comments to the question. Thank you. Um, next question that we have is with the pediatric guidelines more strongly emphasizing embolization over surgical intervention, is there reason to believe that there's a higher risk of needing nephrectomy in children, or is there something different about children versus adults? Uh, to lead to that stronger bias towards embolization? Um, very good question. I think that the nephrect, we don't know if the nephrectomy rate is higher in children or adults. Um, the uh, angioembolization, we here at the University of Washington at Harborview, we um, practice that angioembolization all the time, even for adults. Um, I think especially in children, they have more isolated renal injuries, um, which means that they might have, they might not be taken to, to surgery for a laparotomy um, as often. So we as urologists need to manage those and um, trying to control the bleeding with angioembolization um, is much less invasive, of course, than an open surgery and much less risk of uh, nephrectomy. In, I think, the adult population, there's more penetrating trauma and then also other organs that are injured and potentially uh, that need surgical exploration by the general surgeons. And so you might be called in um, and you need to explore and don't have the um, opportunity to send the patient to the uh, to IR. But if there is bleeding, in an adult, I would also recommend um, angioembolization. And I think that's what the AUA guidelines mean by conservative management. Um, they don't explicitly say angioembolization, but the conservative management includes um, angioembolization. I know that we don't have access to this here at Harborview itself, but it, in places that may have a surgical robot available at Trauma Center, what are your thoughts on considering minimally invasive approaches for stable patients with something like a UPJ disruption? Great idea. When I was uh, talking about it, I thought, you know, should I bring up the robot as well? But totally, if you are um, comfortable on the robot and the patient is stable for uh, to tolerate a pneumoperitoneum, um, then I think a UPJ um, repair robotically is, is very uh, slick and, and, and would be, I would do it if we had a, um, a robotic, uh, if we had the robot here at Harborview. And can you speak a little bit more about um, follow-up imaging after high-grade injuries? Do you follow patients at, uh, at some interval beyond their acute period with DMSA or ultrasound in your own practice? And when do you select one modality versus the other? Uh, very good question. Um, the uh, high-grade injuries, we've 
um, usually followed with an ultrasound, just like I uh, showed you in the case. Um, the renogram, um, we actually have a study that's uh, going to hopefully come out soon that compared the initial CT scan and basically the devascularized de segment of, of kidney and it compared that to the renogram and we could actually, we found that the initial CT scan shows you very well um, how much kidney is injured. And um, if you know that, then I think a renogram is not really that important. Um, especially it doesn't show, change management. The patient, you can tell the patient how much function is left, but you can get a rough idea from the initial imaging that the patient received in the hospital and how much function is left in the kidney. So I have gone away from uh, renograms. Um, some even argue why follow at all with imaging um, if the patient is doing well, if their pain has resolved, if they don't have hematuria, if they don't have a fever. Um, but I think in children, it's still, um, uh, I think, recommended to get an ultrasound uh, for the high-grade injuries. Thank you. And one last question. Um, in the setting of urinary extravasation, for patients who are observed or who do get a stent, um, is there, what, what is the role for catheter drainage? How long do you drain? And also what is the role for prophylactic antibiotic? Very good question because that all depends on basically surgeon preference. Um, I still think that having a um, ureteral stent in, um, we know that when you urinate um, and have a stent in, there can be reflux up the ureter uh, where the stent is placed. It gives it the nice passage that gives the, the urine a passageway to go up into the kidney, which could potentially during urination cause some back pressure pressure and the urine will extract right into the injury. Um, so I think having a catheter in for four to seven days, um, you know, we haven't studied that. We don't know how long it should be in there or not, but it just makes sense to me to drain um, the patient optimally with a, a urethral catheter once that stent goes in and then um, removing it once either the, if the patient has presented with infection, fever, pain, then you could say we'll remove it once those, uh, the pain, fever has resolved and the white count has come down. But if there's no um, uh, symptoms, then I would just remove it in four to seven days. Uh, prophylactic antibiotics, um, I think they, you know, having them in for four to six weeks while the stent is in it so long, um, there's no indication uh, really, there's no literature to support it. So I don't um, place the patient on prophylactic antibiotics um, for urine leak. I only treat them if they get symptomatic. Awesome. Dr. Hagerin, thank you again. Really good talk on a challenging issue that hopefully we'll continue to get some more uh, guiding data on over the years to come. Uh, for everyone who submitted questions, thank you all so much for asking a lot of really insightful questions about management and follow-up for these patients. If we didn't get to your question, or if you have one that you haven't submitted yet, go ahead and put it in the Q&A, and we'll try to answer all of the remaining ones in the follow-up transcript that gets posted after the lecture. Great. Thank you all for your thank time. Thank you very much for participating. Thank you, Dr. Skokan. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon.
Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.